Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. And to kick things off, we are going to catch up with uh, Louise uh, Bezina, the Artistic Director of Brisbane Festival, uh, who just recently launched her 2023 program. So if you are thinking of escaping the Melbourne cold and heading somewhere warm in September, hopefully it shouldn't be that cold by then, but I think it still stands, uh, then Brisbane Festival this year, there's some fantastic work on. And as always, I love looking at the program and trying to work out which of these shows is going to come to Melbourne in about a year's time. Louise Bazina is the Artistic Director of Brisbane Festival and last week launched, Louise, am I correct in thinking, your fourth program for the festival? Yes, that's absolutely right. It was my fourth program and, yeah, it's just so fabulous to have the program out in the world and uh, hopefully all your listeners have had a chance to have a look at it. If not, um, jump online and check out the program, but I'm sure we'll have a little chat about that this morning. We absolutely will. One of the things that I love about the interstate festivals is, one, the way they support and reflect the local arts ecology. Uh, it's an opportunity for visiting Melburnians, for example, or somebody listening to us from Shepparton or Geelong to come up to Brisbane and see local companies that may rarely, if ever, tour to Melbourne. But then it's also a chance to see work that may come to Melbourne in six mm, months, absolutely. a year, sometimes two or th- up to two or three years later after it's presented in a festival. My first proper question to you, Louise, is as an artistic director, how do you respond to and reflect the culture of Brisbane as a city in your program? Yeah, that is such a great question and I think that the most important thing I always think about is, okay, what are the defining um, features of the city? What gives it its personality? Uh, What makes Brisbane so unique and different and how can I reflect that in the program? So that can absolutely be done through local artists and artists who live here and, and telling their stories and seeing the city through their lens. That doesn't mean making work that's about Brisbane, but it, it, it certainly gives you an insight into the creativity that lives here. In addition to that, um, I'm really passionate and excited about making work that is place-based, so very, um, you know, leaning into site-specific works of scale, things that really complement the, the landscape and the environment both built and natural of Brisbane as a city. And so you can experience the city both within the cultural venues that exist like QPAC and the Brisbane Powerhouse, for example, but then other really interesting and unique locations like Hamilton North Shore, which um, has had a growing and and really rich and and significant amount of uh, new work that we've presented uh, at that precinct along the river. And this year we have Salamander, which is one of the big heroes of this year's Brisbane Festival taking place at North Shore. In addition to, you know, venues like that, the Brisbane Serenades, uh, the music travelling around the city to different suburbs is another great way to really experience and see the diversity of this beautiful city. The river is such a defining 
important part for celebrating that through the program as well. Um, and just really leaning into a sense of uh, a, a pride of place, you know, community spirit, community engagement, uh, really feeling proud and, and, you know, Brisbane's bold and vibrant and energetic and playful and outdoors. It's springtime. So the program certainly reflects that uh, as well in its nature. Now, you've mentioned Salamander. Let's uh, look at that in a little bit more detail. This is taking over an entire warehouse at uh, Brisbane's North Shore, incorporating a local dance company, the Australasian Dance Collective, uh, kinetic sculptures, I believe, and also mm -hmm. some uh, UK artists involved. So Maxine Doyle from Punch Drunk, for example, whose kind of reputation is pretty significant globally. All of these different ideas coming together. It sounds like it's going to be a rich and fascinating work. It is going to be incredible. And honestly, I, this is a work that has been so many years in the making. It's an enormous collaboration. Brisbane Festival is producing, we're the production house making this um, massive work, but at the same time as it being quite massive in production and design, uh, it is very intimate as well. So Maxine Doyle and Ez Devlin, and for those that haven't heard of Ez Devlin, Google her. She's a significant artist who has created installations and uh, design for some of the world's biggest stars, including Beyonce. But her reputation uh, from an artistic uh, performance theatre, opera, dance point of view across Europe is significant as well. So they're two incredible visionaries making this new piece that is really a, a response to the climate crisis made with Australian and predominantly Brisbane artists, which was the the direction, essentially, from me when I invited um, Maxine to come and, and make this work uh, for the Brisbane Festival and do something of scale, uh, that was really at the forefront, is having like Lata. So the Australasian Dance Collective will feature. We have some other dancers um, coming into the ensemble as well. Rachel Deese, uh, an incredible musician from Perth, will has written and composed all the beautiful music that sits at the show and will perform live. The set design is is really two glorious installations that Ez has created. It will be incredibly breathtaking. Uh, it's a remarkable production. We start building the sets next week, which is quite extraordinary. Uh, so I really encourage people to come up to Brisbane and, and watch this production because it will... Um, I think change your perception of what kind of art you can experience in this city. Now, if we're talking about works of scale, there's a new musical being presented as well, Banana Land, as part of Brisbane Festival, which I can't help thinking when I read the blurb for it, there's an element of the Wiggles involved. The Wiggles used to be a, a rock band for grown-ups and eventually became a band for kids. And this, too, is uh, a... Uh, features uh, a band called Kitty Litter, who, sorry, they're not a band, they're an onstage conceptual art music oriented <laughs> happening, who accidentally become a huge smash in the world of children's music. Tell us a bit more. Well, you've summed it up beautifully, but yes, it is a new um, music theatre work. I would say that it's a fabulous production that is incredibly funny. It's a comedy, in essence, with 
as you would expect with Kate Miller-Heidke at the helm from a music point of view, those wonderful banging tracks that she's known for. Kia Nuttall has written the script. He's done a remarkable job. This is his first script and, of course, the very famous, um, you know, Melbourne, you know, you, you, this is your loved uh, director, Simon Phillips, is directing this production. But it is exactly as you say, this this ultra cool music happening that 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 way too cool to be called a band. Uh and then suddenly their their songs are played on uh end up on a Spotify um playlist and Banana Land somehow gets mistakenly taken for a children's show, a children's song. So they have to make a decision. They, they, their concert sells out in Gundawindi for the very first time. It's all children. Absolute chaos takes place. And then the band are faced with the conundrum. Do they go down the path of being a popular music group that could actually make some money? Or do they go back to this conceptual art happening and, of course, you know, they, they take the route of, um, you know, following a children's band and uh, become the wiki wiki wah-wahs. But I'll leave the rest uh, to audiences to come and discover for themselves. It's got a absolutely brilliant cast. Max McKenna is the lead who plays Ruby. Uh, I it, It's joyous, it's heartwarming, it's clever, it's witty. Really delighted uh, to be leading the producing and um, world premiere of this incredible new work. Now, there's a company up in Queensland whose work you've championed for several years, including uh, before Brisbane Festival when you were at Bleach Festival, for example, and that's The Farm, who create kind of dance physical theatre works, intense, often darkly humorous, provocative work. For their new work from The Farm, they're referencing the era of Ozploitation films in the 70s and 80s. That's exactly right. And like you've described beautifully, uh, their, their way of making work is highly physical. They are dancers at, at their um, core. However, there's an incredible element of comedy and humour that they use in the way in which they tell um, whether it's a particular uh, idea that they want to explore. Uh, in this case, it is about celebrating those behind the scenes um, and and not so much a celebration in the sense that when you watch the show you um, uh, you know it's completely turned on its head it, it's as you would expect it you know the the lead actor comes out swans out you know 1970 safari suit and then you see the stunt double doing all this extraordinary movement, uh, highly physical, incredibly um, hard work, really hard work, just slogging themselves out in the background uh, and absolutely getting zero credit. The other thing I love about this production, it is very much looking at um, a gender bias, particularly from a female perspective and how, you know, in the 70s um, there was certainly uh, an incredible um, element of exploitation and um, gender inequality. Um, I found myself in watching some of the rehearsals wondering, you know, yes, a lot has changed, but actually has it come that far? So I like the fact that the the farm are tackling those really profound issues and doing it in a way that's really accessible and engaging. You will have a great night at 
stunt double at the powerhouse. It will be an excellent, excellent night of performance. And if you want to get even more involved, you can um, opt in when you buy your ticket and be one of the extras who plays one of the key kind of, um, you know, roles with whether it's a runner or et cetera on stage uh, with the production. So, yeah, really love the farm. I think they're an incredible company um, and I encourage audiences to experience stunt double. Now, in terms of works that are referencing the contemporary world and contemporary issues and trends, there's two works I wanted to look at, The Making of Pinocchio and Unconditional, which seem to kind of partner each other quite nicely. We're seeing in the in the mainstream media at the moment, and particularly in fringe media and online, some really hateful and horrid attacks on members of the trans community. Both of these works are responding to some of those uh, trends and concerns and uh, the the growing strength of the trans community, but in quite different ways. Absolutely. And so The Making of Pinocchio is uh, coming out from the UK. It's a brilliant theatrical production that I was fortunate enough to see at the London International Festival of Theatre last year at Battersea Arts Centre. And just from a craft point of view, it was such brilliant and clever imaginative storytelling, uh, the way that they have um, decided to tell this story of love and transition through the story of Pinocchio. So the, the production is set in a fictional film studio and you're basically invited to go behind the scenes of um, Rosanna Cade and Ivan McCaskill, the two artists who are both actually... Um, partners in in life and in art Um, and you basically get to go on the journey of their relationship and the transition of either from from a female to a male Uh, and really looking at um, that notion from Pinocchio, I want to be a real boy. Uh, It it is very, very cleverly done. The the set design um, really reflects this kind of um, magical woodland um, film set, uh, and it's an excellent way of understanding, um, you know, the the incredible amount of um, emotional the emotional journey that it uh, that the people who are transitioning go through, and that they do it with such care and consideration that uh, it really struck me as a wonderful production to bring to Australia and, of course, to Brisbane, to the Brisbane Festival. The, the other production that you mentioned, um, Unconditional, is a lo- local work. It's, it's been made by two artists, uh, Sean Dowling uh, and Cameron Hurry. Uh, Play Lab are producing the work. Brian Lucas, a very well-known um, physical theatre performer and um, he will be directing this production. But it, it's sort of the flip side, actually, of... Um, of Pinocchio, it's looking at the relationship breakdown of a married um, male gay couple and one of the the men in the relationship actually um, wanting to transition into a female. It definitely uh, takes on board personal lived experiences of the artists who are performing and who have written, Sean and Cameron, uh, and, and it's incredibly moving, incredibly touching, a beautiful 
um, theatrical piece that's uh, smaller in scale to Pinocchio, but a really great compliment and an opportunity for audiences to have a conversation to um, see the world through a different lens and particularly as you say there's some pretty hefty political conversations that that are um, circling around at the moment and um, you know the festival is a place to also have some really difficult conversations in a really safe environment so uh, that's part of why these works have been programmed and they're very current issues of today. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Louise Bazina, who's the Artistic Director of Brisbane Festival, and we're talking about Louise's program for the 2023 Brisbane Festival, which is running from the 1st to the 23rd of September. You can find out program details and book tickets at www.brisbanefestival.com.au. Louise, to wrap up, before uh, just before we finish, you mentioned street serenades. This is something that grew out of uh, COVID and making COVID safe art and entertainment, live music, <laughs> performed outdoors, touring the suburbs of Brisbane with different kind of musical forms. And this is something that's become, a, I guess, a, a landmark part of your program. Yeah, absolutely it has. And I'm really thrilled that it continues to evolve. Uh, this year it's evolved once again and it's it's certainly um, uh, reminiscent of the COVID days with the travelling music truck where we would pop up in 190 suburbs. Uh, so we're doing that again, not to 190 suburbs, but to 23. In addition to that, we have created some really beautiful uh music concerts that are much longer in duration that take place over an afternoon into an evening at really iconic parks around the city. So that's taking place as part of the Serenades program as well. And there's a whole community engagement program that happens that we've co-designed with community uh, and neighbourhood centres around the city, all led by professional artists and responding to the needs of those who are, are seeking um, a different way of connecting with um, the festival and providing access and inclusion to all of Brisbane uh, to be part of something that um, should be available to, to them all, to the entire community. Now, there's a strong visual arts program. Uh, Street Serenades is just one part of the music program. Let's finish by talking about the way the festival is acknowledging both the strong Pacifica community that is uh, in Brisbane and broader Queensland and also First Nations artists and their participation in the program as well. Absolutely. So Siva My Club is our next big new work um, that is a celebration of the Pacifica community. And as you said, that we have a really big um, um, Pacifica community in, in southeast Queensland. Uh, and we have been working with the local community and professional artists to make um, gloriously big productions that take place at South Bank as part of our um, centralised festival garden. So Siva My Club is the next version. Uh, it's joyous, it's wonderful, it's dance, it's music, it's uh, comedy, it, it, it's big, bold and, and beautiful. Uh, so that's going to take place. There's a very strong First Nations program across the festival including a new work 
by Thomas E.S. Kelly, who uh, of Coral Projects. This is a solo new dance uh, theatre production called Garamananya, and that will take place at Metro Arts. And this is paying homage to those uh, from various communities around the southeast Queensland area who unfortunately never had the opportunity for their families and for themselves to actually um, go through and have the sorry business that, that, that they deserved because of some of the you know, disgusting uh, ways in which our First People have um, been treated over the last 200-odd um, years. We've barely scratched the surface of the Brisbane Festival program, but there is much to explore. I do recommend if you've not been up to the Brisbane Festival before, it is definitely uh, worth diving into the program, booking yourself some tickets, booking yourself some flights and accommodation, or calling that Brisbane friend uh, who perhaps moved back after uh, 10 years in Melbourne and saying, you remember that time you said you had a spare room? Well, uh, so the Brisbane Festival running from the 1st to the 23rd of September. Check out brisbanefestival.com au for full program details. Louise Bazina, Artistic Director, thank you so much for talking us through just some of the many highlights. Thank you so much for having me and, and for your wonderful knowledge and passion, Richard. It makes the interview so, so much more rich. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. I'm joined in the studio by my next guests to discuss Catalogue Theatre's production of the Carol Churchill play, Far Away. Now, Carol Churchill, I have raved about on this program before. She is, to my mind, the great playwright of her generation in the UK. She's, I don't know, it's, it's a terrible analogy, but think of her as the UK's Patricia Cornelius in terms of being an outspoken feminist playwright exploring challenging themes that some middle-class audiences are a little unnerved by. To tell us more, I am joined by actor Alison White. Alison, lovely to see you again. Hey, Richard. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Uh, and director Cassandra Fumi, who last we spoke about cardboard sets and people being swallowed by crocodiles. <laughs> this one's a little less funny. <laughs> I love that production. Crocodiles was awesome. It was. It was a joy. It was a joy. So... Talk to me, uh, the two of you, about your takes on Carol Churchill. Why is she such a significant playwright? Well, I think it's the writing is just ex exquisite, generous, um, and like so pared back. And f as a performer, um, first of all, you look at it on a page and you go, what the hell does this mean? Like, you know, like you do with Shakespeare. And then all of a sudden you know exactly what it means and not only on an intellectual level but on a, on a spiritual level as well. It's, it's just good writing and that's what good writing does. Um, and it has a really great social fist to it too. Mm. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, this play in particular, it feels like it's kind of a fable about totalitarianism mm. and it's far, far away but it's very, very close. And so it's been such a pleasure to work with this language. We've just been diving into some of the most fascinating conversations and discoveries. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lovely little fairy tale with these big 
fat punch. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the sheer idea of a child being woken by screaming... Mm-hmm. Uh, without wanting to give too much a, a, away about the play, um, as a as a an opening element of what is going on outside my window, mm. what is the reality of the world that is being hidden from me? I mean, as a starting point, and then uh, unpacking a discussion with her aunt, kind of <laughs> uh, from where it then goes. Uh, it's this is from everything I've read about it, a, a kind of a. a the punch that kind of that you just mentioned yeah. kind of uh, uh, does feel like this is something that is going to hit audiences. Yes, and um, you know, I, from a, from a storyteller's point of view, um, I love doing things like this because you go, "There's a reason to exist. <laughs> I'm not just a court jester." You know, you have a 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 something that makes people think that opens people's minds um and and i think it's a it, 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 yeah i think it's important mm. in terms of directing a play like this given uh some of the the themes talk to us cassandra about trying to make sure that it, it's the audience aren't going to stagger out at the end of the night feeling like they've been assailed or assaulted <laughs> yeah totally um well, I think because the language is such a gift, our design team, so Dan Barber and Rachel Burke on lighting and Rachel Lewenden, um, who's done this incredible score for the piece, have really created this world that it's it's non-naturalism. Everything's heightened. There's a staircase that goes to nowhere and I'm not going to give any more away. But we are in this space where objects transform and so... We've created images that although, you know, it is really heavy and you are thinking about real things and you are really going, oh, my God, you know, what is what is the point and when will I stop living in these systems that I live in and will I change? Mm. You still, it's supported by this beautiful language of storytelling that our design team have just done an extraordinary job bringing this world to life that, transforms in moments and is constantly shifting around the performances. That's that's the generosity of Churchill as a writer. Yeah. She gives other artists um, great trampolines. <laughs> Lynn Gardner, the uh, British theatre critic in a review of a revival of uh, Far Away, described her as somebody who, uh, like a stubborn child, insists on asking probing questions despite the continued evasions of adults, again referencing Mm. the the play itself, but notes that uh, Churchill can also spring surprises too, most of them nasty. (laughs) Yes, they are, but we as humans deserve them, frankly. (laughs) We're not very kind to our world or to each other. Yeah. And that's what the play's about. Yeah, those. <laughs> yeah. I guess that yeah. kind of the the dystopia, which mm. Uh, mm. this is a a piece of dystopian fiction, but far removed from I guess your your nineteen eighty fours and your your more science fiction style dystopias, for mm. example. There's something. Would it be fair to say? Uncomfortably familiar yeah. about this world. The, oh yeah. The nat- there's a natural world around it that's revolting in a way, a revolting natural world. And that's what we're living with, with climate change, um, you know, with, uh, with, <laughs> with systems of government that just don't support being a human being. Mm. It's just not right. 
And Alison, you mentioned Shakespeare earlier in terms mm -hmm. of Churchill's writing. There's an, a nice parallel there then with uh, the, the natural world being intensely disordered in Macbeth, for yes, example. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, yeah, another beautiful play. <laughs> like, oh, I'm such a lucky person. <laughs> um, yeah, I, the, the writers are amazing people. And, uh, um, you know, they're the Cassandras of this world, the, you know, mm. the truth-tellers. And um, um, as they're the truth-tellers. And, and as an actor, um, being able to interpret those, those, those truth-tellers is, is um, such a bloody privilege. Um, and uh, I feel incredibly spoiled. Um, and I've done a couple of Carol Churchills in my time. I've done a couple of Shakespeare's in my time. Um, was talking about Arthur Miller uh, mm. as well. Um, mm. We were talking about the Crucible. I introduced. We. I was. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That's another story. But um, <laughs> uh, I just. Um, yeah. I. I feel incre incredibly privileged to be able to s say these words and just have to say them. There's not a lot of acting involved. You know, the the more you can erase the acting lines, the better it is. Just let the let the language sing. Does that mean, as director, you just don't want to get in the way? Yeah, I feel like it's one of those things where when we lean into this language, it's there. You know, this has felt in. It hasn't felt like a show that I've directed by really holding on. I've just let it go. And let it go. Letting it go has meant that we've discovered these beautiful things, you know. This ensemble of actors, so also Darcy Kent and Lucy Ansel, and Darcy and Narai, who are our two children who alternate, <laughs> and yeah. Ali, have just interpreted this work in such a deep way. And I think, as a director, your job is actually just to create clear images that can be oh. interpreted. And yeah, help. help story, yeah. And that's all. We've all always come back to story and mm. we've always come back to the language. And, you know, there's going to be, as Darcy really greatly said, a hundred different faraways that live in people's heads after this. And that's yeah, a and really that, great thing. And, and that, that again a, is Carol Churchill's and that's generosity. Churchill. Yeah. The generosity of Churchill. Is it a challenge as a director to have to step away in that regard or is it actually a, an educational experience to go, there is so much in this play that, as you say, my job is to create scenes, not mm. to kind of impose my own version of a truth upon it? I deeply trust my collaborators, so it's actually been really lovely. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I Yeah, I deeply trust... Um, Dan and Rachel and Rachel and I think their vision for this is so in the work as well and 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 it's it's actually a really great exercise I think because it means that the it's about the work always so I just to step back and go oh oh but I saw that and I saw this we've also got an amazing assistant director Kudo who's been so useful because we are in traverse <laughs> um, yeah uh, which feels really right. You know, this is a play about us and them and the enemy is shifting all the time. Yeah, yeah. and there's a yeah. really strong uh, paranoia around about through all three acts and I think when you've got 
two sides of audience watching each other. I think that's a fantastic thing. <laughs> yeah, we're watching the whole time from yeah. the first moment a child is watching. We're watching. We're watching people watching people. And in Traverse, we're going to be watching the other bank and that's part of it and we've built all of that into the world. Which is one of the things I love about Traverse seating is watching yeah. other people's responses. Yeah. Kind of making <laughs> yes. occasional awkward eye contact with someone on the other side of the stage Ooh. and then going, oh, we should probably be watching it. Yeah. <laughs> but that's life and that's glorious and that's what it should be, yeah. you know, but, that we, but, yeah. To be able to, to, to feel the emotional response you're having to a work and then see that reflected on the audience's faces. Alison, for you as an actor, given that you've worked on main stage, independent work, film, TV, kind of how conscious are you of an audience's reaction kind of to a work, particularly when you are deeply invested kind of in, the, in the production? Oh, you're very, very conscious of it, very conscious of it because it's, that's, that's, uh, that's the beauty of theatre. You know, you're in it together and um, that's a sort of religious experience, I suppose, from a performer that you're very, very conscious of how they're reacting and I can tell you who's in the audience, who sneezed, who did this, who did that. I can tell you the hyper, 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 hyper sort of, um, you know, awareness of when you're on stage is the most thrilling thing. (laughs) So you are being watched, you're being listened, your reactions are being processed. <laughs> Audiences, take note. Do not check your phones. Alison will notice. She'll it's, say. Also, it's, also, it's also on a, on a different, it's not just, you know, I can see you doing this and I can say, it's also listening in a different way. It's not just hearing, it's listening in a different way. Hearing that collective intake of yeah, breath, yeah, for Yeah, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if either of you got to see the MTC production Jackie that was on uh, as part of Rising. Unbelievable. But I was in it. (laughs) Well, of course you were. Yeah, she was. Um, You just reminded me that, A, yes, you were in it. God, I should have reread your bio more carefully this morning. But also that moment, in there was a, a couple of moments in the play where, like, I swear, not only could I hear people's breath drawing together. It's so fun. But um, it was almost like I could feel uh, people's sphincters clenching yes, in unison absolutely. at one point. It's yeah. That fun play was so much fun to perform. Go, oh, goody, goody, I get to do this bit now, I get to do this bit now. And um, just hearing Penny drops, Penny's mm. drop was just so much fun. Um, yeah, and I'm really looking forward. We, tonight we have our first audience of Far Away and I'm really looking forward to hearing... The reactions of it. Oh, um, yeah, it's going to yeah. be thrilling. It's so going to be thrilling. Preview tonight. Preview tonight. Opening on Friday night. Opening on Friday. And then running through until the thirtieth <laughs> of July. That's right. Forty-five <laughs> downstairs. I think yeah. we should probably plug those details at some point, otherwise <laughs> the publicist will be upset. <laughs> uh, but uh, so. This production of uh, Far Away by Carol Churchill, presented by Patalogue Theatre, on yeah, previewing tonight, opening tomorrow night, running through until the 30th of July at 45 Downstairs. Details at 45downstairs.com. A question for both of you, Cassandra and Alison. We've talked about the writing and you've talked about how special and beautiful it is. Mm. Can you try and articulate for us what makes the writing of this play so special? Um, I think it's, it's the... Um how spare it is, actually. There's not a lot of fluff around it. Mm. It's just really... And her rhythms are really, really uh, present. Um, so if you're, you're a slave to the rhythm <laughs> and you are very, very, very precise with your learning of the lines, you don't have to do anything other than say it. Mm. It's a pretty easy act. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah. You make it sound simple. Uh, it, it, it is so simple. Yeah. And it is unbelievably rich. I, I because my character's only in the first first act and the third act, I got to sit and watch the second act yesterday. And it was so rich. And it was so oh my God, you know, it was so rich. Can I just say this play runs for about fifty minutes, yeah. fifty five minutes. And you are taken into worlds that are vast, and it's um, mm. it, 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 it defies logic to think, hang on, we've just sat here for 55 minutes. I've been going here, there and everywhere. And that's, that is the magic of, of what she's created and what I think um, the creative team, mm. having responded to this work, have created as well. Yeah, every single word matters and every word can be so many different things. And I hear things for the first time all the time. And so there's something in what she's saying is so important. What she's saying is now. What she's saying is very close. And so making it now feels so poignant and urgent and important. It ain't far away. <laughs> I also love the fact that it's such a compact work because that's something that I associate yeah. not with all of Churchill's work, certainly, but I know the MTC just next month, in fact, yeah. are doing mm. two short Churchill plays mm. kind of as a double bill. Yeah. Es- uh, escaped What If Alone. Uh, sorry. Uh, es- escaped Alone and What If If Only. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. many ifs. Yeah, so no. many ifs. But it, it feels like we're getting our own mini Carol Churchill season in I Melbourne know. as a yeah. result of the work that you're presenting and the MTC. So lucky Melbourne audiences, I have to say. Lucky Melbourne audiences. Yeah, it's certainly a joy. Yeah. So uh, those details again, Patalogue Theatre's production of Carol Churchill's Far Away at 45 Downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane, Melbourne, from from tonight, previewing, opening tomorrow night, running through until the 30th of July, 45downstairs.com. If you need wheelchair access to the venue, please let 45 Downstairs know and they will arrange that. Otherwise, I will probably see you in the stairwell at some point or <laughs> milling around before we enter the theatre. Cassandra and Alison, it's been a pleasure. Thank you both so much for coming in and I'm really looking forward to the production. Chookers. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Richard. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. My next guest is joining us to talk about the Gertrude Street Projection Festival, which is running from the 27th of July until the 6th of August. I'm joined in the studio by Priya Namana, who is the Artistic Director and CEO of the Centre for Projection Art. Priya, welcome back to Triple R. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. For people who've not ventured out along Gertrude Street and surrounds in the depths of winter, tell us about the Gertrude Street Projection Festival. Absolutely. Um, So Gertrude Street Projection Festival is in its 15th year this year um, and it happens every year. It's an annual festival that we present um, during winter to sort of bring some warmth to the street itself in that hyper-local context. Um, and it goes, it's over the years, it it has varied over the, the duration of it. This year we're doing it for 12 nights um, and essentially it's an invitation for people to be able to experience beautiful conceptual video uh, lens-based artworks that are 
on taking over the civic spaces of Gertrude Street. So you can walk up and down. There's a really nice vibe and energy and just experience work in a non-gallery context by very uh, beautiful contemporary artists who are working in very conceptual spaces. That idea of a non-gallery context is something that I think is so, is really fundamental to the festival uh, mm-hmm. because uh, it means that people can discover work by accident as they work walk home, for mm-hmm. example, or if they're catching the tram down the street on the, the, the way into the city to see a show, they will catch work out of the corner of their eye and then perhaps come back in a night or two. So there's the, the democratisation of art in that regard. But also the creative challenge for an artist of, are you making a work to be seen in a shop window? Are you making a work to be seen that will take over an entire building or a tree? Or kind of those kind of creative responses. Talk to us about that aspect of the festival. Sure. So every year, um, I've been, this is my second festival that I've been involved in and um, every year, it's every year the approach is different depending on the team that's working with, with the artists. Um, the last last year and this year, the way we have worked uh, with the artists really closely through a dialogue, an ongoing dialogue, where we are really looking into what is it that they're wanting to um, explore in their artwork itself, but also in the presentation model and why they're interested in showing in civic spaces. So, And through those converse- conversations emerge what might be appropriate for their artwork, like whether it's a building facade with windows and masking the windows out, or it's a shop window where we're projecting. So it sort of is a is a conversation through which we arrive at this and go, okay, this this site might be really good for you and then from there the mechanics of it goes but but that's that's usually the way um I've been working with the artists and it's it's it seems like it's a really nice um uh ongoing conversation around not just the artwork but also the community that Gert, uh, on Gertrude Street who will be involved given that the festival's been running for 15 years how many of the artists that you're working with this year are return artists who've been involved in the past Mm, that's a really good question. No one actually. Um, all eleven artists are our artists in residence who haven't showed with us before. Um, however, there are three community projects that we're presenting as well, and within that is James Henry, one of the artists who's a uh, portrait photographer who worked with the Collingwood College students um, to create these portraits with them, and we're doing a p- paste up poster project with them um, and he has exhibited with us in 2019 I believe. Well, Which is actually kind of exciting in a way that it's a whole fresh new wave of artists. Yes it's super exciting um, especially for the festival we have been as a centre for projection art in conversation with them for a while uh, because they're artists in residence with us as well so um, it's, a re- it's a very relational way of working with them but for the festival itself yes it's very exciting they have never shown on Gertrude Street. For people who have been visiting the festival for several years for example as a result of that kind of deepened ongoing relationship with the artists do you think that will mean that visitors will see something new something different that they haven't experienced before? Yeah I've been thinking about this a lot Richard I think it's hard to anticipate what people will see and how they will experience the works of course but definitely the works are quite conceptual so the idea we're really working with the idea of art in public spaces which is what we have been doing for such a long time but bringing the articulation into conceptual artworks which are traditionally seen in gallery contexts um, how do we bring them out and make them accessible in civic and public spaces so in that way it feels a little bit different and I'm really interested to see how it will be received as well because the artwork 
artworks are quite um, deep and very rigorously uh, researched by the artists as well. So they're not all spectacle. Um, so, well, they're not responding to a spectacle of a big projection site as such. So really curious to see actually how that will land this year. Given that uh, the phrase conceptual art can sometimes discourage visitors, mm. uh, uh, it, it feels like it's an, an ac academic phrase or, or art world jargon to an extent if you're mm. not familiar with what it means. Unpack it for us a little bit and what it means in the context of the festival itself. Yeah, this is a really good point as well. We've been trying to think through this because the artists use that word quite a lot. So we have been using the, that language to <laughs> honour that, um, how they're articulating their works. And for the way, and I, you're completely right, it is a very academic uh, term. But I think the way we're not going into the canon of conceptual art as such, um, here the way we're referring to it and talking about it is that the artists are, for example, um, exploring uh, a very long relationship with certain ideas that they've been working with. Um, for example, one of the artists that we're working with is um, working around AI responses to different site-specific works. Um, and so her PhD and research is around these, these concepts. So she will collect usually field materials and play with them and how will AI respond to that and be in collaboration with that and the site and the ideas that she's exploring. So those concepts, so that's, that's sort of what we're referring to when we say conceptual artworks. They're not patterns or beautiful light shows. They are more, uh, if you go deeper into the each work there is a whole narrative and story and a rigorous framework that each artist is presenting so that is sort of what we're saying when we say conceptual in this context now the festival itself as you said is uh running uh from the 27th of July to the 6th of August. Yes, along Gertrude Street, but there are other sites and other locations, including uh, an opening party at Collingwood Yards. Yes, indeed. Yes, we're very excited this year. We've expanded into quite a few off-site. Uh, we're calling them off-site activations. Um, I think it's an ongoing conversation. It has been an ongoing conversation for the festival um, with the model having been um, presented in so many different ways now um, nationwide. How do we expand out of that hyper-local context of Gertrude Street. So we're slowly, gently experimenting with a few little things. So we have Collingwood Yards is our home. That's where our studio is based, we work out of. Um, so it was really, it was a nice synergy to to organise an uh, opening party then. We're working with Emerge, a booking agency from Yarra Youth Services who've grown out of there, who've curated an awesome lineup of music. Um, then we also have all the works playing from July to September at Fed Square as well. So that's another opportunity for the artist's work to be seen and experienced in another space and also the Bunjil uh, Place outdoor screen as well. So these are the few different off-site activations that we're hoping, yeah, will bring the different audiences to the works and also the idea of Gertrude Street Projection Festival expanding out of its heart of Gertrude Street. Slowly conquering the city. <laughs> yes, indeed, <laughs> indeed. And, and kind of uh, the fact that Bunjil Place, which has become such a key part for kind of a range of communities out kind of Narrawarra and Berwick way. Mm. The fact that they're involved now is fantastic. As you say, Fed Square, which uh, many people think of Fed Square as a place to, to party, for example, or to come together for important communal events, sporting events, for example. So yes. the idea of being able to celebrate um, conceptual projection art 
in that same context is really exciting. Super exciting. We're so excited. The artists are so excited and it looks really incredible as well. And also Fed Square and Banjul Place, the outdoor screen area, they're gathering places as well. And that's the core of the festival too, an idea of gathering around artworks and a street. So that speaks to that as well. And am I right in thinking that there's something happening on Peel Street this year as well? That's right. That's another off-site um, space that we're working with. So Talia Palmer, one of our artists, uh, her work will be showcased there for the duration of the festival because Peel Street um, is run, Peel Street Projections is run by City of Yarra, who are one of our funders, um, and they already have a projection program there. Um, and they focus um, mostly on First Nations artists and Talia Palmer's work fit in that quite well and we thought we would expand that partnership there. So a dialogue between Gertrude Street and Peel Street between different organisations in different parts of the city. Yes, yes, in Yes, perfect. <laughs> the Gertrude Street Projection Festival is running from the 27th of July until the 6th of August. It's always a delight to see the street come alive in such a unique way when the, fe- the projection festival is on. Knots of people milling and moving around and discussing work. And, and, uh, and of course, it, it also then benefits all the local traders as well, which I'm pretty sure is how the festival started. It was the Gertrude Traders Association it, yeah. who did the very first festival. Absolutely, yes. And it was uh, the Gertrude Traders Association association for a long time before it became the Centre for Projection Art that started running the Gertrude Street Projection Festival. Um, And the focus is still the traders as well, but the traders is, as you would probably know, the landscape has changed a lot. Significantly, (laughs) yes. Uh, Now, is there a map on the uh, festival website, for example, so people can identify the the key locations that they need to take note of? There is. So when you land on the homepage, there's an interactive Google Maps, so you can uh, land on that page where you can see every single site that will take you to exactly where the projection works are. That website is www.gspf, Gertrude Street Projection Festival, uh, gspf.com.au. You can go there for details of the festival and the artists involved. Uh, and to learn more about the Centre for Projection Art, go to centreforprojectionart.com.au. Priya, beyond the festival itself, what's next on the calendar for the Centre for Projection Art? Uh, We're going to be working with our incoming artists uh, who are part of the festival to develop more of their works uh, and get deeper into their practices through a partnership with uh, an artist-run initiative in the city of Yarra called 7th Gallery. Uh, We're also um, collaborating with Arts House to uh, present a work uh, as part of Now or Never Festival um, uh, with the NAP Ministry who are coming here from America. That will be uh, in the uh, towards the end of August until September. Um, they're the next two projects, yes. It never stops. It never stops, yes. <laughs> it's exciting. Uh, and as we said, Gertrude Street Projection Festival presented by the Centre for Projection Art running from the 27th of July until the 6th of August. Yes, along Gertrude Street Fitzroy, but in other locations as well. So check out gspf.com.au for details. Priya Namada, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks so much, Richard. Triple I don't know about you, but I have a pivotal childhood memory of seeing a concert by Ivan Rebroff at the Melbourne Town Hall. I must have been about five. I dozed off uh, until the pipe organ was used. 
and I was suddenly very wide awake. And ever since, I've been in awe of not just the potency and power of the pipe organ at the Melbourne Town Hall, but its resonance, its emotional richness and its uh, ability to conjure such an array of styles and moods. The reason I mention all of this is because I'm joined on the line by internationally acclaimed organist Joseph Nolan, who will be performing six complete organ symphonies over five days at the Melbourne Town Hall. Joseph, good morning. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm very well. Now, you've just heard my introduction to the organ. What was yours? Uh, it would be pretty much similar to, to yours, actually. It sounds terrible. Uh, look, uh, there, are, there are two types of organs, really, for me. I mean, the one that you just described... Uh, but your listeners might be surprised to learn that as well as the major sort of powerhouse organs that you find in the major concert halls and cathedrals of the world, um, the, actually some of the, the best ones are the smallest um, yeah, that can make this, you know, the, the quietest sound can speak to you in the most intimate, surprising way. Um, the organ's a real uh, a chameleon of an, an instrument. It's not a machine, as many people think. So it, uh, instead of, yes, because as you say, a machine makes people immediately perhaps conjure someone pounding keyboards, an almost kind of, not necessarily violent, but an, an aggressive form of play, as opposed to a subtle performance coaxing the best out of an instrument. That said, uh, I, from what I've seen of playing at particularly the major pipe organs, uh, it's a, a pretty demanding performance style required. Uh, to be an and beat or anything French, you're quite right. Um, you know, if you're not fit, I think <laughs> you're in trouble. And uh, I certainly, you know, as one gets older, you, you visit the gym just to keep up, um, you know, the physical aspect, the, the mental stamina. And um, uh, people always ask me, how do you coordinate your feet uh, and your hands at such speed? Uh, I always say to them, well, the secret is, like everything in life, I'm sure, is the preparation. Um, if you're having to think about it and you're not, you know, in the subconscious, almost looking down on yourself as you play, you just can't keep up um, with what is required of you. Now, you just mentioned the composer, Vion, whose work you will be performing over the 18th to the 28th of July at Melbourne Town Hall. That's a, right. A uh, so his complete organ symphonies. Tell us a little bit about Louis Vierne for people who are unfamiliar with the composer. Well, I, I suspect that a lot more people would have heard of Jean-Marie Vidor, of course, because his famous Toccata that's been played, at, you know, a million times at royal events. They would have, you know, heard that very famous one piece. Of course, he wrote ten organ symphonies. Vierne was actually um, Vidor's prized pupil and be became known as Vidor Jr., um, was organist at Notre Dame uh, Cathedral in Paris uh, for 37 years. Uh, he's probably their most famous organist composer ever, actually. And he actually, on his 1,750th concert, died at that very console when um, playing the bottom note E. He had a massive heart attack while playing his own triptych uh, with his pupil, very famous uh, chap called Maurice Drouflet, standing right next to him. So um, it's pretty dramatic pretty dramatic stuff. It's, I've got to say, though, a good way to go out doing what you love. Uh, yes. I'm not sure I 
it would be for me, but <laughs> it may it may be taken away from me. You never know. Uh, now, you <laughs> have performed on organs around the world. Have you performed on the pipe organ at Melbourne Town Hall before? I have. In fact, in 2017, uh, we did the um, the Vidor project. I've just, of course, talked a bit about uh, Vidor, uh, and that was absolutely marvellous. I mean, the Melbourne Town Hall is such a great space. Uh, it's an epic organ, and there were thousands and thousands of people through the door. Um, so I'm really looking forward to uh, playing the, the BN and, and seeing what happens. And if people don't know his work, how much hopefully they'll um, come away from it thinking, wow, I've really you know, heard something fantastically new. Now, before we talk about some of the music itself, I wanted to note that I just only recently learned that there used to be a, a great kind of pipe organ uh, in the Melbourne Arts Centre as well, which has apparently gone missing. Have you heard anything about this? Oh, uh, is that the same um, building as Hamer Hall? Yes. Yeah, Hamer Hall is part uh, of the Arts Centre overall. And yes, apparently it, 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 was, it was dismantled and placed in storage and has not been seen for some time. Uh, well, funnily enough, I've been asked about this uh, in another interview. I have actually read an article online and... Um, Look, uh, yes, I mean, I'm not in the centre of it, so I can't give any uh, genuine, you know, real kind of insight. But look, I would say that um, Melbourne, obviously, is a major cultural uh, hub in the world. It's a very famous city. Uh, uh, Your your symphony orchestra, Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, is absolutely fantastic. Um, So um, it would make sense that the the hall has an equally fabulous organ, uh, you know, to accompany such, or, or indeed lead in a concerto, such a fabulous orchestra. To come back to the work you're going to be playing at Melbourne Town Hall, uh, so six symphonies over five nights, uh, you've described this uh, in an interview with The Age as being like a ring cycle for the organ. Mm. It, it is. a lot. Uh, you know, uh, uh, quite a few of my colleagues, you know, think it's a rather crazy uh, project. I mean, there's so many notes with the Vienn and so many... Chromatic notes, that means lots and lots of black notes uh, at different times, you know, descending in semitones. So it gives this very sort of tortured, painful um, uh, feel to the music. There, is, there are lots of joyous movements as well. People that, you know, think I'm just going to come and hear despair. But there's, there's an awful lot of Mahler. People love Mahler symphonies. You know, there's a lot of Wagner almost like quotes in there. But then there are mo- movements which are very like Beatles staccato, if you like, very joyful, bell-like. Um, I think people will really love the music. Given some of the, uh, the the darker elements of it you've described, I almost wonder if half of Melbourne's goths are going to turn up to it and enjoy the concerts. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but they're very welcome. For people who are aficionados of the urn, what do you hope that they listen for in your playing of the music? Uh, I always try to the best of my ability. It's, it's a really difficult balance, isn't it? Because you're trying to pay homage to the composer as much as possible. And with that comes an awful lot of reading and listening because there are a lot of sometimes mistakes in the music. Vidor was, uh, sorry, Vienne in the, uh, was blind. So a lot of the tempo markings, for example, are inaccurate and were done by publishers, not by Vienne. Or he was thinking about the music at the piano when he was composing it, not necessarily the organ. There's so many different considerations. Um, You obviously want to put your stamp on it individually, but not in a way that your ego takes 
the performance away from the composer's intentions. That sounds a rather long-winded answer, but I hope you sort of see what I'm driving at. It's a very difficult balance. So I, I hope they hear a lot of Vienne, uh, you know, in terms of that lovely legato style that needs to be in his music. But obviously I need to try and bring something new to the phrasing, to the tempos, to keep bringing the music to life. Every act of performance is an act of interpretation to a degree, uh, but it sounds like in the case of the, the musical notations you've just described, for example, that there has been for you a degree of exploration, experimentation uh, and, and very serious study in order to try and recapture what the composer was aiming for rather than the publisher. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, you have to be very, very careful um, because, you know, often so many editions don't have all the right notes in them. So you really have to go digging to find really what were the, the right notes first, because then if you're not really playing the right notes, you're already on a, you know, the back foot. Um, so, and there's a lot of contextual reading to be done. What was happening in Vienna, you know, the political time of Vidor going, uh, uh, of Vienna at that time that might explain why he felt that way, what was going on in his life at that particular moment. I mean, you know, Symphony 3 to 5 are so dark. 6 is just a little bit of light at the end of his life, not much, and that that shows in the last movement of his sixth symphony. Um, so you're absolutely right. There's a lot of work to be done whilst and before you're learning the music. And, Joseph, I know, am I right in thinking, too, that across the six symphonies, there's also, uh, you mentioned uh, Notre Dame Cathedral earlier. Am I right in believing that there's a, a very kind of uh, sacred aspect to the music as well? This is, is it not quite necessarily liturgical, but uh, what a, a spiritual uh, sensibility that supports the work as well? There is. I mean, they're, they're, you're quite right. They're not actually really sacred works. It's more. I mean, it's sort of. They're more meant for the secular uh, concert. Well, you you can play movements, obviously, uh, for certain uh, masses in the in the cathedral. But I mean, Vienne is quoted, I think, as saying that you know he felt the power of every stone in Notre Dame, and of course, his scherzos were written with the gargoyles of Notre Dame coming alive and dancing around uh, the cathedral in these sort of grotesque musical jokes. So um, he he lived for the organ at Notre Dame, uh, and that's really what kept him going for a really pretty difficult life. Joseph Nolan is performing the Vion Project, featuring the music of uh, composer Louis Vion at Melbourne Town Hall, uh, performed on the grand organ. Six symphonies performed over five nights from the 18th until the 28th of July. So uh, if you go to the City of Melbourne website and the events page, you'll find uh, a few more details. But, for example, on Tuesday the 18th of July, there's uh, a concert from 1.30 till 2pm. Uh, and... On they go. It does, Joseph, sound like it's going to be a demanding project, but hopefully one that will be enormously satisfying for you personally, as well as the audiences who attend this series of uh, what I think will be spectacular free events. Uh, uh, yes, it will. And uh, I think the City of Melbourne have really put something on, you know, that's very unique and, and powerful and, and kudos to them. Joseph Nolan, thank you so much for joining us and uh, all the best for, the, uh, for this quite mammoth undertaking. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you. Triple R. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, 
every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 